What exactly have all these central bank programs meant for the corporate bond market? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of January 9th, 2023. And do I have a treat for you today? To mark a new year, we have some groundbreaking new research to share with you and a guest to walk us through it. But first, a bit of context as to why we wanted to have this particular special guest today. In our 2023 Economic and Market Outlook, we wrote that we believe sticky inflation may limit the Fed's appetite for easing financial conditions in the coming quarters, even if economic growth slows. The Fed put, as it's called, that implicit support for the U.S. economy may not be as present. But while conducting research for an upcoming piece around risks to that view, the black swans that could break consensus in 2023, we also found among investors a very strong consensus view regarding the Fed's ability to intervene in the event of any true market dysfunction. And that's a very fine needle to thread where the Fed is able to intervene versus where it's willing to intervene. And it has serious implications for market pricing and, of course, investment policy as well. So a fine needle to thread, serious implications. No team is better suited for challenges like these than our colleagues at Mackay Shields, who have conducted some original research on this topic, examining the Fed and other central banks' actions during the global pandemic crisis and thinking about what we can glean from the market experience there. They've extended this analysis to the euro area, the European Central Bank, to give us some valuable insight into whether it's true that this Fed put that I described is no longer in our or investors' service. So this research was conducted by Stephen Friedman and Michael De Palma, who are our colleagues at Mackay Shields. And Steve lost the rock, paper, scissors competition. So he's now here to join us today. Steve, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. So I'm curious, Steve, what drew you and Michael to this topic? Why did you start research here? Well, I think for me, the interest goes back to my days at the New York Fed. In my last role there from around 2010 until I left in 2013, I was working in the markets group as director of uh, financial, uh, financial markets. And in that role, most of my time was spent really thinking about the interaction between Fed policy actions and communications on the one hand and financial markets. So when it came time to thinking about how the pandemic and the Fed's response to it was impacting financial markets, it, was, it, was, it's, it certainly just appealed to my, my long-term interest in the topic. That makes perfect sense. So then I'll have to ask you a follow-up, which is why now? What Maybe you can give us some background as to what happened during the pandemic crisis that made this particular line of inquiry ripe for discussion. So if, if you'll recall, and as your listeners will recall, when the pandemic started, Fed really took a very, very broad brush uh, and very 
forceful brush at that as well, introducing a number of facilities across markets to make sure that what was a health crisis and a burgeoning economic crisis didn't spill over and become a very, very deep and protracted financial crisis, which as we know, would feed back onto the real economy. So one of the tools that the Fed used at that time was to create a new facility that would support corporate credit markets. The Fed said that it would stand ready to intervene and buy investment-grade credit and ETFs in both the primary and secondary market. In fact, a little bit later on, they even extended the facility to include high-yield ETFs. Now, I think most investors thought that this facility was extremely important in, in stabilizing the corporate credit market to ensure that corporations could continue to fund themselves in the primary market. But even at that time, there was a bit of concern that I picked up on in financial markets that perhaps the Fed was somehow permanently altering perceptions of credit risk, that having intervened in this market once, there would be a perception that the Fed would stand ready to intervene in corporate credit markets in the future. If that was the case, it could impact how financial markets would trade. It could mean that corporate credit risk premium was permanently lower as a result of expectations of interventions in the future. Now, I think this is important. I don't think it's just an academic question because as investors are increasingly concerned about a recession, I think as the calendar turns to 20. 23, there will be increased discussion on how the Fed might act in the next recession. Will they not only cut rates, but resort to conventional QE? And might they even return to the corporate bond market as well? So it seemed like a, a question that was ripe for analysis, especially with recession risk rising. Yeah, now our, our regular listeners will have heard exactly what we've been talking about in the past few weeks around, will the Fed be able to save the day as we get closer to recession? And this, this intersection of policy and market pricing is, of course, extremely important for asset class policy in 2023 and, and frankly, beyond. But we'll come back to that question of pricing. Let's think a little bit about these programs now that we're three years, almost three years past when they were implemented, what's your take on whether they were successful? What are maybe some of the pros and cons of the programs themselves? Well, I think that they were absolutely critical. I think they played an important role in stabilizing financial markets and bringing back investor confidence in those early days of the pandemic. With the hindsight now being at the end of 2022 and moving into 2023, I think there are, is an argument that could be made that, for example, on the QE side, that QE lasted for too long, particularly in the mortgage market. It was clear that even by late 2020, early 2021, the housing market probably didn't need support from the Fed. But I think more importantly for, for this paper, I think there is a real question about for credit facilities and how they are impacting investor sentiment. And that's exactly what Michael and I tried to analyze in this paper. And just to be a little bit more concrete about the concerns here, let's assume that investors think that in a future recession, the Fed stands ready to buy corporate credit debt. And we don't know when that future recession will come, but most corporate bonds, if you think of them, are of longer maturity. If there is a perception of a Fed put, it could lead to corporate bonds to trade permanently rich. You could see a mispricing of credit as a result of just that expectation of future Fed support. That could make it cheaper for corporations to fund, so it could encourage additional leverage by firms. And it might mean that, that investors aren't paying quite as much attention to the pricing of credit risk as they should, because there's this assumption that perhaps in the future, default risk will be lower because the Fed stands ready to support, uh, particularly the investment grade market. If this dynamic, which you're describing, if all of that is true, it just confirms an idea of how powerful what the Fed says is for the market and how linked what the Fed says and how that is perceived is, is so strong and, and so important. 
as we've moved through the post-pandemic economic cycle, one of the common criticisms that I've heard about the Fed is that they were behind the curve when it came to inflation. And so that has led to some questions around the Fed's credibility. Now, one of the ways that I address these concerns myself is to say that the fact that the Fed often needs to do very little more than say what it would do in the event of a crisis, and it may not even need to do those things, is a strong vote in favor of its credibility. And of course, there's a whole conversation for another day around whether the Fed is really credible right now on inflation, et cetera. But just with respect to what you're describing, the Fed's actions what it's meant. You and Michael write in this paper that this was very much the case in the pandemic crisis, that the Fed didn't even need to actually buy very much. It just had to signal its support for the bond market. Can you explain that? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Very often when you have the credible central bank, just communicating the actions that they plan on taking can have that effect immediately in, in financial markets and on public expectations. And in fact, we've seen that even recently. As we know, in late 2021, the Fed started communicating that it was going to begin raising rates as it became more concerned about inflation. And at that point in time, we saw markets start to price for higher interest rates. So the Fed may have lost some credibility in terms of its inflation forecasting, but its credibility as an inflation fighter was still intact. Now, then if we go back to the event in question, the response to the pandemic, we saw that as soon as the Fed an announced that it was going to buy support to credit markets, we saw a tremendous rally take hold. So spreads had widened as concerns over the pandemic really took hold. But once the Fed announced its support for the investment grade market in particular, we saw spreads come in considerably. We saw the primary market reopen. And I think this was a combination of things. First of all, the size of the facility that the Fed announced was just very, very large, $250 billion of a commitment to support the market. Second, uh, Treasury was involved as well. They provided an important backstop uh, that would protect the Fed from first losses, should that occur. Uh, and third, just the Fed's willingness to get involved in a market that had traditionally always stayed away from. You combine those three together, and I think it just struck investors as an overwhelming amount of Federal Reserve support for the credit market. So at the end of the day, the Fed only had to buy about $15 billion worth of corporate credit because it showed that it was willing to act on its communications and back it up if necessary. But that largely proved to be unnecessary, just given the, the power of the commitment. Well, now the cat's out of the bag, right? The Fed has done this. I think, Will, we'll, it'll be very interesting, but we will likely be able to label BCF before the credit facilities and ACF after the credit facilities in terms of, you know, the, the Fed signaling that it is willing to operate in this environment if necessary. And the purpose of this research was, as, as you've pointed out, to determine whether that willingness, if, if the market is reading that willingness as being permanent, is the repricing in the credit market something that's going to stick around? What did you find in the research? Does the market think that the Fed is permanent? So we started with the presumption that if there is a view that there is a permanent Fed put, we should be able to see signs of that in markets today. And interestingly, you know, despite this concern among investors that the Fed has sort of opened a Pandora's box by intervening credit markets, we actually don't find a lot of conclusive evidence to support that view. So spreads certainly have been quite narrow since the pandemic, but they don't appear to be narrower than fundamentals would, would suggest. We also spent a fair amount of time looking at fair value models and how current valuations in the corporate market were trading compared to these fair value models with the assumption that if there was an expectation of Fed interventions, you would expect maybe on a consistent basis, spreads would be narrower 
than fair value models would predict. But that actually doesn't appear to be the case. And we looked at other indicators as well, including uh, corporate CDS spreads and options pricing. And, and broadly speaking, it's really hard to see evidence that those prior interventions in the credit market are continuing to impact how credit is trading today. Now, I think an important caveat has to be offered here. It might be that until investors become extremely concerned about a recession, they're just not really focusing on this, this question yet. And as a recession approaches, they might return to the subject. At that point, we might be able to make some more interesting observations about valuations in the credit market. But at least to date, when we look at a, a range of indicators, it's hard to find evidence that there's clear expectations of future Fed interventions uh, in the corporate credit market. Now, of course, one of the ways to be comprehensive in this analysis to, is to look beyond the U.S. And, and towards some other central banks that have made meaningful interventions in policy over the course of the pandemic period. And so you and Michael looked at the European Central Bank and what's happened in the euro area and came to some different conclusions. So can you describe what you found there? Yes. And I should say these are tentative conclusions, but it does seem to be the case that there's some evidence of a more lasting impact of ECV purchases in credit markets. And just to give two examples, investment-grade spreads in the euro area, I think, widen much less than fair value models would have predicted in the early days of the pandemic. And that could suggest that as the pandemic started, there are already investor expectations of large-scale ECB support for corporate bond markets. And some of the other indicators that we look at also do suggest some evidence of a more lasting impact of ECB purchases in European investment-grade credit markets. Why do you think that the results were so different in the euro area compared to the U.S.? So I think a lot of this gets back to the fact that there's a very, very different legal framework and political framework, for that matter, in the euro area compared to the U.S. So the ECB, for example, they have a very clear legal authority to buy investment-grade credit. It's in the ECB charter that they're allowed to do so. And in fact, given that authority, the ECB actually started purchasing corporate bonds in the euro area back in 2016. And we're sort of doing so on and off in the years leading up to the pandemic. So it's already been established in the euro area that this is a normal central bank activity. Now, in contrast, the Fed actually doesn't have clear authority to buy corporate debt. It has to jump through some interesting loopholes to, to do so. It has to create a facility and then lend that facility. And then that facility can buy corporate credit. In addition, the Dodd-Frank Act established that the Treasury Secretary has to give prior approval to any emergency lending facilities. Uh, and a corporate credit facility certainly falls into that category. So in contrast to the ECB, the Fed faces a different set of, of legal and political challenges if it wants to engage in corporate bond purchases. And I think that's what really accounts for the difference. I think here there's this understanding that this is something that you only do in an absolute emergency. It requires the involvement of Treasury, perhaps even Congress. Whereas in Europe, it's almost become run-of-the-mill already. And I think that difference has an impact on how investors perceive relative credit risk. I want to freeze frame that last couple of sentences that this is one of the major differences where the Fed just has to do more to make these types of interventions and that it's likely to be a crisis or emergency only type of circumstance. And frankly, we're likely very lucky, at least in economic terms, that the Fed was able to learn so much from previous crises in order to make these things happen on a reasonable time frame when market stress was, was mounting so quickly. Now, speaking of market stress, we've been talking Talking about the European Central Bank or the ECB, the Bank of England has also intervened in markets recently to deal with some, some market stress in recent months. What do you make of these programs? 
So that's a very good question. And it is really interesting to see the Bank of England program uh, where they came in very temporarily to, to support the long end of the gilt market, which was undergoing some stress. And the ECB recently established a, a facility to support sovereign debt, particularly in the periphery. They were concerned that as they tighten policy, peripheral spreads might widen significantly, and that could impair their ability to continue with policy tightening. Now, in both of these cases, the central banks came up with very tailored and limited facilities to address the very, very specific issues. And they did so because they wanted to make sure that they would retain the ability to tighten policy to fight inflation. I think this is very important because it shows that going forward over the next year or two, as central banks continue to tighten policy, we could have these flare-ups of financial stability issues. But I think these two examples tell us that the central banks will address any issues in very, very tailored ways so they can continue with policy tightening. We should not expect that if there is a financial stability risk that, that comes up, that central banks will stop tightening monetary policy. They will address those risks separately with very specific facilities, but continue tightening policy. Ooh, and that is so important because as I'm in the field talking to investors, I'm hearing all the time that, you know, as soon as something breaks in the market, the Fed will be unwinding its interest rate policy. And while, of course, none of us know exactly what will happen, the, this experience from not just the Federal Reserve, but other central banks is very much, it challenges that perspective that central banks can't be more targeted, more tailored, to use the word that you were using in, in their policy approach. I'm curious, though, to dig just one step deeper. Deeper, if there are any further implications for policy moving forward based on these, these tentative findings from your research, is there anything else that, that we can take away as investors from the policy learnings of the past couple of years? First off, add to the last point that you made. I think you're right that there is this view out there that, for example, you hear people say, well, the Fed will tighten until something breaks. Well, I think we have to be mindful of the fact that with inflation is high, something could break and the Fed will continue to tighten. And they'll look to address whatever has broken it in a very, very specific way. And I think that point is often often lost on investors. With inflation high, central banks react very, very differently than they have when we are in the low inflation environment. And then to your question, I think we're going to learn a lot about the impact of, of past interventions in the credit market if and when a recession does approach. So we might find that investors actually do think that there is a Fed put in credit markets, and then that's artificially keeping spreads low for the time being. Well, then a recession comes and the Fed says inflation's high, we're not going to resort to QE and asset purchases. What happens then if spreads weren't being held down artificially because of this expectation? Well, at that point in time, they, they, could, they could correct significantly. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty here, but I think we're going to learn more as Fed policy tightening continues. Well, then I have two follow-up questions and they're my last questions, I promise. But because you're speaking of things that we'll learn as this economic cycle turns and, and it is turning, right? We are still in this post-pandemic economic cycle, even though it has been almost three years. Are there any next steps for, for you and your colleague, Michael De Palma, on this research? You mentioned we'll need to wait and see on some things, but there, is there anything in particular that, that you'll be diving into next time? So I, I think one area where I would like to do some follow-up is in options pricing. As we know, investors will often use the options market to hedge against specific tail risk events. So one might reasonably expect as a recession approaches, if concerns about credit risk uh, increase, we could see options premiums change to reflect that. But you know, if there is really a perception that the Fed stands ready to intervene in the credit market, we could see a different dynamic play out in options markets. So I think that's something that we would like to study in the future, but that we may have to wait until we get through a stress event in order to do so. 
All right. Well, we'll flag that for another episode. Just one more question, as I promised. Lots of really interesting takeaways for investors and you know what they could potentially be looking out for as the economic cycle turns and, and markets react. If you were to boil it to just a takeaway or two around investing, is there anything you'd share with us? So I think the one comment I would make is that when it comes to the riskier portions of a credit market, if you do go into a recession, those typically perform poorly. So I think investors do have to be very, very cautious when it comes to those riskier portions of the credit market. That will, of course, present opportunities down the road, but it's usually not until you get well past the Fed begins to cut rates and you start to see a rebound in activity that you can expect stronger returns in that part of the market. Well, for our listeners, I did not cue Steve on this, but Steve, you accidentally reinforced some of the points that we made last week around quality as we move closer into recession, if recession is to come. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure. And this is really groundbreaking stuff. And so thanks for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Lauren. It's always a pleasure to be with you. That's it for today. For all your 2023 questions and topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views and see some of Steve's research as well and Michael's research at newyorklifeinvestments.com and clicking the insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date. is subject to change. It is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issue or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as the primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate individual circumstances, and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. Mackay Shields is a sub-advisor for some mainstay funds and one of the New York Life Insurance Company boutiques. Not all products and services provided by Mackay Shields may be available to all investors, limited by applicable laws and regulations in certain jurisdictions. Any opinions expressed are the views and opinions of certain investment professionals at Mackay Shields, which are subject to change without notice. No part of this material may be reproduced in any form or referred to in any other publication without express written permission of Mackay Shields. New York Life Investments is both the servant and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company.